Hello and welcome, History of the Netherlands podcast listeners. This is a uh, special episode that we made for the Low Countries website, and we're going to be dropping it as a filler, a placement holder for our usual chronology, given that we've been dealing with some life-changing things lately, moving house, resuming normality. So, um, yeah, kick back, relax, and just let this one brew for a little bit. Enjoy. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Today, we will be talking about our very favorite thing in the world, beer. The Low Countries are famous for their beers. With the two largest beer companies in the world, Anheuser-Busch InBev and Heineken, being based in Belgium and the Netherlands respectively. Although both countries are renowned for their beer, the styles they are famous for stand in stark contrast to one another. Belgium is known for its darker and heavier brews, often relatively high in alcohol content. Belgian beer also carries a certain mystique to it. Is it made by solemn, robed monks living in the dark silence of an abbey, following an ancient recipe in the same tradition they have been doing for thousands of years? Or perhaps it is brewed by red-hatted gnomes living deep in the Ardennes forest. Some would say that nobody will ever know. Beer made in the Netherlands, on the other hand, is perhaps viewed as less exciting and more known for being, well, Heineken. For many people, there is more to be said about the quality of their marketing campaigns rather than the quality of the actual product. Closer inspection reveals, however, that it was from the northern low countries, those areas which make up today's Netherlands, from which the use of hops in beer production was spread into today's Belgium and further on into England. And in fact, most of those Centuries-old Belgian beer brands, which we love to drink out of fancy glasses to impress onto our friends how sophisticated our taste is, actually turn out to be from the 20th century, despite what the packaging and the years on the labels might suggest. But no matter how you look at it, the history of beer production and beer drinking in the Low Countries is inextricably linked to the political history of the region, with some historians even arguing that it is due to taxes on beer that the separation between the modern states of Belgium and the Netherlands even exists. So in this episode, we are going to crack open a new keg and pour out a few pint-sized pieces taking you through the story of beer in the Low Countries. We will see its humble beginnings following the collapse of the Roman Empire as migrants moved into the area through to the production of beer in monasteries during the Carolingian Renaissance. We'll take a look at how the urbanization of the Low Countries during the 13th and 14th centuries affected brewers and how the growing power of towns led to government regulations on beer production. We'll investigate how the revolt against the Spanish Habsburgs might have failed were it not for taxes on beer, and we'll ponder 
on the alcohol-fueled decadence of the 17th century and the associated worries it generated from the somber and sober Calvinist elite. Furthermore, through our beer goggles, we'll explore the re-emergence of Belgium and the Netherlands following the gloom of the Napoleonic Wars into becoming the modern industrial beer-making powerhouses they are today. And since we've got a lot to get through, we invite you, dear listener, to make yourself comfortable, pour a glass of your favourite brew, and come with us on a journey of discovery into beer in the Low Countries. Prost! Before we get into the history of beer in the Low Countries, it is worth taking a moment to talk about exactly how beer is made and when did humans first start doing this. Making alcohol isn't actually very complicated since it is a natural process. We and all other animals respire aerobically, meaning our bodies break down sugars using oxygen. This produces carbon dioxide and water and gives us energy. When we lack oxygen, our muscles begin to respire anaerobically, without oxygen, and as they do this, lactic acid is created. When you go for a run and you start getting a stitch in your side after 20 seconds because you've been sitting at home for two and a half months during a global pandemic shutdown, this is because of the lactic acid being created by your muscles' anaerobic respiration. Bacteria normally break down sugars this way, by respiring anaerobically. When bacteria are having a stitch while munching on plant-based cells, such as barley or wheat, they produce ethanol, the same way we produce lactic acid when huffing and puffing. Ethanol is arguably the most impactful molecule humans ever accidentally discovered and then spent 10,000 plus years getting drunk off. Essentially, if you smash grains and then cook it in water and leave it sitting around for a few weeks, the natural bacteria around the place will start munching on the sugars, producing ethanol, and then creating a party time. Of course, there are more complications to how beer is made today, but the very first people drinking the first beer did not know about them. What they drank would have probably tasted disgusting. But as we all know, every bad beer or wine tastes better the more you drink it. The very first chemically confirmed barley beer dates back some 5,000 years from within modern-day Iran. Beer is believed to have been drunk in ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt. It is mentioned in the epic poem Gilgamesh and even in the Bible. The earliest traces of it in Europe come in the form of archaeological evidence for malted grain, which has been discovered in a number of Roman sites in the northwest part of the continent. Norse sagas tell of Bjord and Alu being beer for the gods and beer for the people, respectively. Beer in Europe has long been associated with the Germanic peoples on the far side of the River Rhine, the other side from Rome. Roman historian Tacitus was clearly talking about beer when he wrote of the Germans, quote, Their drink is a liquor made from barley or other grain, which is fermented to produce a certain resemblance to wine. End quote. He went on to describe the German drinking culture. Quote, Drinking bouts lasting all day and all night are not considered in any way disgraceful. The quarrels that inevitably arise over the cups are seldom settled merely by hard words, but more often by killing and wounding. 
Nevertheless, they often make a feast an occasion for discussing such affairs as the ending of feuds, the arrangement of marriage alliances, the adoption of chiefs, and even questions of peace or war. At no other time, they think, is the heart so open to sincere feelings or so quick to warm to noble sentiments. The Germans are not cunning or sophisticated enough to refrain from blurting out their inmost thoughts in the freedom of festive surroundings, so that every man's soul is laid completely bare. On the following day, the subject is reconsidered, and thus due account is taken of both occasions. They debate when they are incapable of presence, but reserve their decision for a time when they cannot well make a mistake. End quote. Despite being over 2,000 years old, those are words which could probably describe many modern-day business meetings, except for the whole killing and wounding part, one assumes. After the collapse of the Roman Empire, a period of migration, creatively known as the Migration Period, saw countless Germanic peoples and tribes move across the former empire, many heading westwards and finding their way to the sparsely populated lowlands, Beer was being brewed in the region of Namur in today's Belgium by at least the 4th century, if not earlier. A loose confederation of Germanic lowlander tribes, known as the Franks, settled in the Low Countries, and for them, brewing was an important and regular part of household life. Families brewed for their own consumption, with the task often being undertaken by women as part of their regular chores, and beer was consumed with daily meals. So whenever someone from Oregon tells you that Portland is the home of microbrewing, you can tell them that no, no, that is not correct. In the 9th century, the Frankish king Charles the Great lent his name to what became known as the Carolingian era, which saw a renaissance of culture and technology in the Low Countries in many fields, including the production of beer. Charlemagne's empire emanated out of its capital city of Aachen, which sits in the Low Countries right where the border of Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium meet today. It has been documented that Charlemagne employed a brewer at his court to make sure that the quality of beer produced was up to his standards. Being a Christian king, as his empire grew, so too did the Christian faith spread, often violently, but also considerably due to the proliferation of monasteries. Monasteries were important institutions, since they promoted the education and literacy required for administrators to run this huge empire. And since monks often had nothing else to do other than write stuff down, these monasteries have provided lots of records for later historians to pore over, which document life in that time. In 820 AD, the St. Gaul Monastery Plan was laid out as a prototype for the ideal monastery, including a walled complex holding a basilica, as well as living quarters, a dormitory, guest house, bakery, kitchen, and most notably, not one, not two but three different breweries. Monasteries tended to produce surplus amounts of grain, meaning they had the necessary ingredients to create our favourite drink, and drinking beer was said to have medicinal properties and provide spiritual benefits. Added to these were the obligations that monasteries must provide board and shelter to monks, pilgrims, the poor, 
and travelers. And this meant that the production of beer became a regular function of many of these abbeys. These beers differed from one another, as beers do today. However, the beverage drunk in the Low Countries back then had little resemblance to what we recognize as beer today. It had a much lower alcohol percentage and provided both hydration and extra calories at a time when people were working mostly in physical labor. Lesser quality beer was made of oats and a little bit of wheat, whereas the social elite had access to more expensive beer made from wheat and barley. There was very little use of hops in any beer around the Low Countries at the time. Instead, rural and monastic brewers used additives to give the beverage taste. The beer was flavored with herb and spice blends, what became known in Dutch as groot and in English as groot. Unfortunately, given the ambiguous wording of the source documents, nobody really knows what groot actually was. Everybody's like, what are you? And it's like, I am groot. It must have been a combination of herbs and spices which helped to preserve the beer as well as give it flavor. Bog myrtle seems to have been a staple ingredient. Given the boggy, marshy landscape of the Low Countries, bog myrtle is certainly available. Essentially, we can imagine that people experimented with giving their beer a bitterness and flavoring, so it might have included ginger, lavender, aniseed, cumin, which was popular in Germany. You can imagine that rosemary, lavender, or aniseed-flavored beer would have tasted very different to a fresh, modern pilsner. It probably would have tasted like a post-midnight beer and Jägermeister combo, which is to say just terrible. It was quite difficult for the rulers in the Low Countries to snag a source of revenue from beer, given that the production of it was so widespread but on small household scales. So, instead of taxing the actual production of the drink, the emperors following Charlemagne decided to generate income through the sale of the ingredients necessary to make it. It was an established tradition that the right to land not being used inside his domains belonged to the emperor alone. All of that unclaimed bog land in which grew the wonderful bog myrtle from which Hrut is created was thus naturally the emperor's possession, and it was thus up to him to decide how to dish that Hrut out to his subjects and which of his subjects were entitled to it. This led to the creation of the so-called Hrutrecht, the right to sell Hrut which was often given to the loyal local citizens or clergy, but which could sometimes be given to entire towns as well, such as Bruges in 1226. Eventually, Hrutrecht would be controlled by the counts and dukes who ruled the patchwork of territories which made up the Low Countries. From the 12th century on, beer production in the Low Countries moved from the monasteries based in the countryside to towns, as the area underwent a dramatic process of increased urbanization. Technological developments in agriculture led to a population surplus, which meant that people who couldn't find work on farms anymore moved into towns. Flanders led the way in terms of urbanization, becoming the most heavily urbanized region of Europe north of the Alps. It was between 1300 and 1500 that towns such as Bruges, Ypres, and Ghent really flourished. Although monastic brewing would not disappear completely, 
by 1300, the majority of beer production in the region to towns like these. At the beginning of this socio-economic transformation, urban brewers continued making beer in the same manner that they had in the countryside. Brewing in a town, however, is very different from brewing on a farm, given that you don't have to worry about the whole, you know, running a farm thing. Instead, people could specialise on their trade and focus solely on the production and sale of their beer. Setting up a brewing operation in a town presented its own unique challenges, however, which would end up impacting the physical development of the brewing towns themselves. First of all, you needed to have space for all of the kettles and brewing equipment, and in these physically small towns, which were often hemmed in by walls, with rapidly growing populations, space was at a premium. This would sometimes lead to cooperation between brewers, such as sharing brewing equipment or the spaces to process the ingredients. Any industry that used fire presented a huge risk in cramped medieval towns, which were primarily built out of wood. And breweries, which require boiling vast quantities of liquid and grain, certainly needed furnaces. Regulations were often introduced which tried to limit the risk that breweries pose, requiring the use of wood instead of straw in their fire, and that the buildings be constructed from stone, often being clustered together in a specific section of town, meaning if one of them burnt, all of them burnt, so they all had to work together in making sure nobody went up in flames. Breweries also required access to water, both for creating the drink, as well as using it as access to the trade and shipping routes via which ingredients were delivered and beer was distributed. As such, most breweries were located on riverbanks or by canal sides, and that is why in so many Dutch and Belgian towns, such as Ghent, Amsterdam, and The Hague, you will find a Brouwersgracht, or a Brewer's Canal. All of this taken together accelerated a full transition from home brewing and small-scale monastic industry to large commercial operations, which in turn made it easier for the authorities to make sure they were getting their share of the tax revenues being generated by the fact that everybody drank beer. Towns would soon drop Hutrecht altogether and simply charge an excise tax on the production of beer and by 1580, home brewing was banned completely in Holland. One of the reasons why Hutrecht was dropped was because of an innovation in beer production which took place around this time. This was the use of hops instead of hoot to create an exportable beer. Hops is a relative of the hemp plant, and although people had experimented with using it in beer brewing since at least the Carolingian times and probably earlier, beer made from hops is an acquired taste and was simply more difficult to create than beer from hoot. The thing about hops is that it has antibacterial properties, which means that it is less susceptible to spoilage. This meant that the beer didn't need to have as much alcohol in it as hoot beer did to stay good, which meant that less sugar and grain had to go into making it, leading to an easier-to-consume drink, which could be made more cheaply and in larger quantities. Basically, it was the perfect thing to whack into barrels put into the bottom of a ship and export to faraway places, much like other products such as salted herring were being. Before refrigeration was invented, anything which could stay good for a long time and be stockpiled 
was perfect for sale in far distant markets, and their introduction into those markets could be timed to ensure that they could get the best price. As urbanization continued throughout the 13th and 14th centuries, networks of towns began to cooperate with each other to protect one another's interests and to ensure the flow of goods and merchants between them. One league which developed in northern Germany and the Low Countries was known as the Hanseatic League, which brought together market towns such as Bruges, Ghent, Kampen, Hamburg, Lübeck and Danzig, among many others. Sometime after 1200, brewers in north German towns, particularly Bremen and Hamburg, took advantage of their access to grain markets further east and north to manufacture hopped beer in large quantities for sale in the rich southern markets of Flanders and the Low Countries. Beer from Bremen is mentioned in documents in Bruges in 1252 and in Groningen in 1372, but eventually all beer imported from northern Germany became known as Hamburg beer. Hamburgers and beer. It's still a fantastic combination. The local brewing industry was displeased with the introduction of all this foreign hopped beer in Holland, and the Count, William III, wasn't exactly stoked with it either, given that he couldn't make any money from this Hamburg beer. The foreign product was even briefly banned, a move that proved to be so unpopular with the thirsty Dutch people that it was quickly rescinded. In 1323, however, it was proclaimed that all beer being brought into Holland from Hamburg was subject to an import toll which had to be paid in Amsterdam, and that in the rest of Holland it was only permitted to drink locally made beer. In the book A History of Beer and Brewing, Ian Hornsey estimates that around 1350 over 15% of the income the Count of Holland received from the Amsterdam region alone came from this beer toll, which is a huge amount. The quantities of beer coming in were vast, with Richard Unger in his book, Beer in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, suggesting that throughout the second half of the 14th century, 5,600 tons of beer were moved between Hamburg and Amsterdam each year, almost half of Hamburg's entire yearly production. Amsterdam was well connected to the southern regions of the Low Countries via internal waterways, which were much safer to sail on than the treacherous North Sea and so much of the beer which ended up in Flanders first came via Holland. Hopped beer was more expensive than locally made crude beer, meaning that in the flourishing Flemish towns, the Hamburg beer became a luxury product, whereas ales made with crude became the poor man's drink. It's worth taking a moment to just appreciate the fact that basically everybody drank beer throughout the day, which resulted in extremely large quantities of it being consumed per person per year. Unger provides a bunch of data detailing beer consumption in various towns throughout the Low Countries and Germany, which suggests that in the late 14th century, probably around 300 litres of beer was consumed per person per year, with that number rising throughout the next century and leveling off in the 16th century. That's roughly a litre of beer per person per day, which is almost four times the amount that people drank in the Netherlands in 2018. And if you've been to the Netherlands, then you would know that people here really like drinking beer. So just keep this in mind. Men, women, children, everybody drank beer. The Count of Holland was not content with just making money from the toll on Hamburg beer, which had to be paid in Amsterdam. 
He wanted to create an industry in Holland which was capable of competing with this German beer. So in the 1320s, it became permitted for brewers in Holland to use hops rather than crude. Excise taxes were introduced for both the consumption and production of beer brewed with hops to ensure that the flow of money coming into the commutal coffers remained steady. As the 14th century drew to a close, three towns in Holland emerged as the key centres for beer production, Delft, Gouda, and Haarlem. It had taken a while to catch up to their German counterparts, but as more and more breweries opened, those towns began producing hopped beer in large enough quantities and at high enough quality that they could compete against them. As Holland grew in power, its merchants began flexing their muscles, even fighting and winning a piratical privateering war against the Hanseatic League that ran between 1438 and 1441. This completely cut off the North Sea trade and devastated the ability of those North German brewing towns to reach the lucrative markets in Flanders. Beer brewed in Holland would come to be drunk throughout the Low Countries, from Groningen, Friesland, the Overstick, to Brabant and Flanders. This in turn led to a similar change in taste and local production switched from Groot to hops in those places too, though the process was slower in the south compared to in Holland. Ultimately, however, this transition to hopped beer would generate so much money that towns became dependent on it, addicted to the wealth it generated, and that wealth would even go a long way towards ultimately helping the rebellious low countries break away from their Habsburg Spanish overlords. In their article, How Beer Created Belgium and the Netherlands, Historians Kuhn de Koning, Elena Pullmans, and Johan Svinnen present an argument which draws a direct line between the consumption of beer in the Low Countries to the very formation of the nation-states of the Netherlands and Belgium. For centuries, the Low Countries have been a collection of individual territories, like the Duchy of Brabant or the County of Flanders. Each was ruled by some kind of count or duke or bishop who ultimately paid homage to either the King of France the emperor in Germany, or the pope in Rome. Throughout the 15th century, these territories came to be drawn together under the control of the Dukes of Burgundy, and in the late 15th century, after the marriage of Mary of Burgundy to Maximilian of Habsburg, they came to be a part of the Habsburg Empire too. It was against the Spanish Habsburg king, Philip II, that the Low Countries went into open revolt in the late 1560s beginning a war which would last for 80 years and appropriately become known as the 80 Years' War. The 80 Years' War is, quite frankly, a terrible name for the conflict, for various reasons, but especially since, according to those historians mentioned earlier, this was the perfect opportunity for a much more interesting name to be put into the war nomenclature, right alongside the First World War and the Second World War, you could have had the Beer Drinking War which would no doubt make it much more enticing for prospective historian students to study. But anyway, I digress. The Dutch revolt against Spain truly was a David vs. Goliath story. Similar to the 2010 World Cup final, the Spanish were, on paper, the favourites. Unlike that final, however, in the Eighty Years' War, it was the little Dutch David that eventually prevailed. At this time, the method of conducting warfare was undergoing huge changes, Traditionally, nobles would raise banners and troops would be mobilized from amongst the knights and the common citizenry 
to march off to fight specific contests, after which everyone would all go home if they survived and back to their jobs. Now, however, rulers like Philip II were utilizing professional national standing armies with soldiers who were full-time trained fighters. This gave them more organized, better trained, and more flexible armies. One of the problems this created, however, was that professional soldiers really liked to be paid for their work. If they weren't paid, the soldiers would simply leave and head home to their farms and family, or perhaps go on a violent rampage to express their discontent with management. All of this meant that Philip II needed a lot of money with which he could pay his soldiers, meaning that he needed to raise taxes across his empire. By the 1590s, Philip needed to spend double what his Dutch rivals were in order to keep on fighting and suppressing their revolt. Philip became known in Spanish as Philip the Prudent, which is pretty strange considering that during his reign, Spain would go bankrupt multiple times. This war against the Low Country rebels slash freedom fighters was his main expense. Philip's failure to pay his soldiers stationed in the Low Countries had disastrous consequences for the people living there. The so-called Spanish Fury, which denotes an early phase of the 80-year-long conflict, often represented marauding unpaid Spanish soldiers who had deserted and decided to go about violently looking for some cheese to eat. The most famous occasion was when around 3,000 Antwerpers were killed by such angry, hungry, and violent troops. Despite the economic upper hand they held, the Dutch rebels also had costs of their own, and in the early days of the independence movement, they too struggled to pay their soldiers. The rebellion relied on old-school methods of getting money, like begging it off rich and powerful people, stealing it from poor people, and taking church land and property. Some towns in Holland, like Amsterdam, were quite late in joining the rebellion, but when they did, the northern countries were able to organize a bit better. Holland was the first province to really put its financial weight into defeating Spain. Indeed, throughout the period of rebellion, Holland would contribute about 60% of the total tax revenue of the emerging Dutch Republic. And where did Holland get this tax money? Well, you probably guessed it. A lot of it came from beer. Remember those excise taxes we mentioned earlier on the consumption and production of beer? Well, by this stage, it is estimated that about 40% of Holland's total tax revenue was coming from excise on beer and wine, with beer contributing the lion's share of about three quarters of that. Basically, three out of every 10 guilders which Holland was bringing in each year was a direct result of people's unquenchable thirst for beer, which is truly remarkable. As the requirement for more money increased with the war effort against the heavy-hitting and furious Spanish army, Holland doubled its tax on wine and beer, and did away with all other excise taxes. In 1574, the Estates General of Holland decided that beer could be the basis for further funding, and that although towns could keep one-third of their beer-generated revenue, the other two-thirds would combine with the hefty tax on beer and wine, and go to paying for the war effort. This was soon transformed into a so-called common means tax, of which beer is calculated to have provided for around 30%. As the war stretched on, decade upon decade, Dutch expenditure on the war was able to increase mightily. Between the middle 1580s and 1600, they were able to increase their war budget by over 8% each year, 
and by the 1630s, the Dutch were spending double what the Spanish were able. As written by de Koning, Pullmans, and Swinnen, quote, Although Spain had a mighty empire and rich colonies, the Dutch developed a highly efficient system of public finance, which in the end allowed them to outlast the Spanish. End quote. That highly efficient system of public finance relied so heavily on beer that over the course of the revolt, it is estimated that it accounted for 18% of the general war expenditure, making beer the single most important commodity to fund the fight against Spain. Indeed, the Dutch drank themselves to victory. Now that is Dutch courage. So what has this got to do with the existence of Belgium and the Netherlands? Well, Despite how much beer they drank, the rebellious armies in the Low Countries were never able to fully kick the Spanish out of the region, and the conflict only ever came to an end with the Peace of Westphalia and the signing of the Treaty of Munster in 1648. This treaty essentially split the Low Countries into two parts, the North being a new independent republic known as the United Provinces of the Netherlands, and the other in the South remained under the control of the Spanish becoming known as the Spanish Netherlands, and later the Austrian Netherlands. The border between these two is a great example of one of those strokes of a pen on a map which says, here be one place and there be another. On both sides of that line, people spoke pretty much the same language, and yes, we are arguing in this context that Dutch and Flemish are the same language spoken differently. Some previously existing provinces were split in two, meaning that you now had a Brabant, a Flanders, and a Limburg in both the Dutch Republic and the Spanish Netherlands. But despite being a completely artificial divide, this line which separates these two chunks of the Low Countries pushed them onto diverging paths of fate. The Dutch Republic went through an economic and cultural boom and commercially straddled the planet in a way that no other swampland ever had. The Southern Low Countries, on the other hand, first under Spanish and then later Austrian Habsburg rule, comparatively stagnated. Following the French Revolutionary Wars and Napoleon, both the North and South became part of France, but after Napoleon's defeat, the Congress of Vienna in 1815 reunited the two regions as the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Fifteen years later, the Belgians realised that they were not into this whole the Netherlands thing, went into their own rebellion, and gained their independence in 1839. The borders between the Kingdom of the Netherlands and the newly formed Kingdom of Belgium still largely coincide with those which were established with the 17th century Treaty of Munster. So it is that the existence of Belgium and the Netherlands today can be traced back to the treaty which ended the war, which was funded by taxing those thirsty, rebellious, beer-drinking Dutch. Over the 17th century, Dutch artists became renowned throughout Europe for their work depicting not Bible scenes or royalty, but rather paintings of common people living their ordinary lives, many of which showed people drinking beer and other booze. As we mentioned, the Dutch victory over the Spanish in the Eighty Years' War was something of a David vs. Goliath battle. It had resulted in the creation of a new mercantile republic, surrounded on all sides by powerful monarchies who looked on jealously at the wealth and prosperity of the people living in this small boggy swamp. At the same time, the people living in the Dutch Republic had to constantly worry about the ever-present and ever-real threat 
have been consumed by the sea, that the United Provinces have managed to come out of this conflict seemingly on top of the world was such an unexpected and unlikely result that it naturally led to a lot of introspection on behalf of the new nation. Questions of identity arose. Who exactly are we? How did we manage to do all this? And perhaps most importantly, how long is this all going to last? In his work, The Embarrassment of Riches, historian Simon Schammer argued that the Dutch Republic lived with a constant dread of corruption, as though people at the time were seemingly all too aware that this newfound glory could disappear as quickly as it had arrived. And one of the ways this was expressed was through paintings depicting scenes of alcohol and beer-soaked debauchery. In his essay, Sobering Anxieties, Alcohol, Tobacco and the Intoxicated Social Body in Dutch Painting During True Freedom, 1650-1672, historian David Baylor writes that, quote, No other imagery in 17th century Dutch genre painting was so paradoxically associated with malfeasance and national pride, with embarrassing disgrace and economic success, with threatening foreign invasions and the comforts of home, and with masculinity and femininity as effectively as images of alcohol and tobacco consumption. End quote. Go walk through the Rijksmuseum one day and you will see painting after painting depicting scenes of soldiers feasting at tables, drinking toasts to each other, or of household scenes showing drunken men and women sitting around touching each other whilst naughty children stand around watching them. These images are often very humorous, but were designed with a clear moral message in mind. Sure, these people might be having fun, but their intoxication is making them neglect their proper role in society, much like children growing up in that family would be bound for a life of sinfulness, so too would the Republic become rotten from the inside if it allowed itself to. Perhaps the master of this genre of painting was a guy called Jan Steen. Born in Leiden in 1626, Steen's family were Catholic brewers living in the officially Calvinist Dutch Republic. Steen studied at Leiden's Latin school before going to the University of Leiden. He started a painter's guild there before moving around the Netherlands, spending time in Delft, where for a while he ran a brewery. He went to The Hague and he also was in Harlem for a bit. In the final years of his life, the Dutch art market collapsed, so to get an income he ran a tavern in Harlem. Jan Steen was a man who had spent his life living with, looking at and serving drunk people. This is perhaps why despite actually having a wide range of styles in his repertoire, it is those sort of genre paintings we were talking about by which we most remember him today. Since audio isn't the greatest medium for looking at a painting, let me just briefly describe a few to give you a sense of the scenes which Stein recorded. In The Drunken Couple, a woman lies completely passed out, slumped on her back in the lap of a man who is presumably her husband. He sits there with a glass in his hand, eyes squinting, face red, mouth half open, looking like he's no doubt trying to say something really witty and intelligent, but completely lacking the ability to do anything after having had about 10 drinks too many. I know the feeling. Directly above his head is a drawing of an owl, which at the time was a symbol of stupidity and vulgarity due to the fact that they are pretty much blind during the daytime. It's fitting because the guy in this painting is also well and truly blind. 
So much so, in fact, that he's completely unaware of the three people who are at that moment rummaging through their house, stealing their stuff. It's pretty clear that when this couple wake up the next morning, their terrible hangover is going to be made all the worse when they realize they've been robbed. In another painting called In Luxury, Look Out, Stain depicts another messy household scene gone terribly wrong. The only word to describe this painting is pandemonium. We're in the middle of what has clearly been a raging party. In the center of the party sits a young woman with a relatively low neckline, smiling and staring brazenly out at the viewer. A jug of wine dangles from her right hand with a glass of red wine in her left, placed right on the crutch of a guy sitting next to her. This guy has his leg draped over her, but he's distractedly looking up at an older woman over his left shoulder, as she tugs at his sleeve, waving her finger and talking to him. A guy who is presumably that lady's husband stands behind them, reading from a book while a duck sits on his shoulder. A young lad is then playing the fiddle, looking across the room at some kids who are sat around a table. These kids are running amok as the woman who is presumably the head of the household and is no doubt supposed to be looking after them has passed out probably from too much drink. One of the kids is stealing money from a purse while another is smoking from a pipe and a baby is looking out from its chair at an open barrel of beer which is draining onto the floor. A dog is standing on the table taking advantage of the fact that chaos reigns supreme and is helping itself to a pie. Fair enough. The floor looks like a pigsty with pretzels, a hat, and other junk scattered all over the place. And it is quite literally a pigsty because there's also a pig with the tap of the beer keg wedged in its jaws. At the very top of the painting is a monkey playing with a clock and stopping it from running. Quite honestly, it's hilarious. But the message is so clear. It's okay to have fun and enjoy the good times, but don't take it too far, otherwise chaos will ensue. It is beyond the scope of this podcast to go too far down the rabbit hole of these Dutch genre paintings, but we just wanted to give a taste of some of the depictions of alcohol during this unique period in Dutch history. These household scenes depicted an anxiety which went deeper than just worrying about what was happening inside the house, but rather what was happening to a new nation at large. To once again quote David Baylor, quote, The unpredictability of an intoxicated individual not only equated the accused to that of an immoral, illogical, and animalistic being, but it also threatened society, end quote. And perhaps this anxiety was justified, since in 1672, the Netherlands would indeed be invaded by pretty much all of its neighbours with the so-called Rampjaar, or Year of Disaster. The associated economic downturn from this war saw the collapse of the Dutch art market, which was what forced Jan Steen to spend his last years working in that tavern in Harlem. Judging from his paintings, however, we think he probably would have enjoyed it, or at least been able to make some nice psychoanalytical observations being surrounded by the people he clearly already knew so intimately. Drunks. What followed was a period of decline for the beer industry in the Netherlands. Products such as coffee, tea, and cocoa began to arrive in the Low Countries in the 17th century. At first, they were very rare and often used as medicine rather than something to sell to consumers. As colonialism ramped up throughout the 18th century, however, prices of these items dropped markedly, making them more affordable. They did still have a 
luxury aspect to them and attracted people to trendy new establishments like coffee houses. Also, the rise in popularity of spirits such as Geneva, which traveled better on ships, only added to the woes of beer brewers. All of this could be a podcast in and of itself, but suffice it to say that the heavily taxed beer brewing industry suffered a dramatic decline over the next two centuries as it struggled to compete in this new era. In the 19th century, industrialization and scientific advancements had a dramatic impact on commercial beer, which would pave the way towards the modern brewing industry as we know it in the Netherlands and Belgium today. In 1876, a book by French chemist Louis Pasteur was published called Etudes sur la bière, or in English, Studies on Fermentation. The book outlined the discoveries he'd made by experimenting with the microbial nature of fermentation, which we briefly touched upon at the beginning. From this point on, the bacterial process by which beer is made would come to be understood in far greater depth and detail. It was Pasteur's work which would ultimately lead to more control over the brewing process and to a greater standardization of the final product. In 1864, a 22-year-old man named Gerard Adrian Heineken purchased a building in the center of Amsterdam called the Hoiberg, the Haystack. This had been a brewery since the 15th century. Within a decade, he had hired a student of Louis Pasteur to develop a bottom fermenting yeast for him, and it was from this that Heineken Brewing Company was born. Within a couple of decades of its founding, Heineken Beer had won several awards which were prominently and proudly displayed on its label and continue to be so today. The original Heineken Beer was most likely dark in color, similar to a German Dunkelbier. The blonde Pilsner-style Heineken didn't arrive until 1877, two years after that first award. Which brings us to what we feel is perhaps the most interesting aspect of how we perceive beer from the low countries today. We love to imagine, and it is frequently implied to us through marketing, that the beer we are drinking from the low countries is old, that it is steeped in a history of the same ancient recipes which robed and barefoot monks have been dusting off and passing down from generation to generation since the Middle Ages. As we mentioned at the start of the episode, the two largest beer companies in the world are Anheuser-Busch and Heineken. Their acquisitions of small breweries in the low countries over the last half century, and particularly the last 20 years, have been coupled with the successful creation of a sense of tradition connected to those local beers. The beer recipes themselves, however... Yeah, not that old. In fact, to our surprise, Heineken, as it stands, is one of the oldest going around. This is no doubt going to be hotly disputed by beer nerds, but the oldest continually existing beer in the Netherlands today is Amstel Bock Beer from 1872. Amstel, by the way, is a brand which is today owned by Heineken. What about Belgium's oldest beer then? Well, Westmalle Trappist Beer dates back all the way to 1922. Chimay, with their sweet and identifiable little chubby, antique-feeling bottles, is from 1948. In fact, most Abbey beers date from after World War II. 
so too does Leffer Blonde, despite the fact that every Leffer bottle has Anno 1240 printed prominently around the neck. Duval, in its current form, is from the 1960s. Even Hoogarden, or as Australians call it, Hogarden, a beer and village known for the wheat beer, is from 1966. And though it is impossible to pinpoint the exact oldest beer in the country, there are only a few contenders, such as De Troc Lambic Faro or Lindemann's Far, that supposedly date back to the early 19th century. Trappist beer is the heralded and exclusive label of beers that must be brewed under certain conditions, including the supervision by at least one ridgy-ditch Trappist monk. Trappist monasteries, which are first recorded as starting in the latter half of the 17th century, would have brewed beer like pretty much everyone else. Today, there is a notion that Trappist beer is based on this deep sense of history and tradition, centuries-old quality control and a standardization that's stood the test of time. Well, the International Trappist Association, which oversees this strict adherence to antique legacy, is from 1997. People have cats that are older than that. The fact is that the modern beer companies and their marketing departments have realized that appropriating and latching onto the identities, names, and characteristics of monks is a great way to sell a lot of beer. Yes, I know this hurts to hear. An example of this is one of the most popular beers from Belgium, Triple Carmelite, made by Brauerei Bostels. Triple Carmelite has received multiple international awards. It's a fantastic beer. And if you read the label, you'll see that it is brewed, quote, according to a 17th century recipe from the Carmelite Monastery in Dendermonde. The Carmelites are a Roman monastic order founded in the 12th century, which still exists to this day all over the world. The Carmelite monks, living in Dendermonde, however, were thrown out of their monastery by the revolutionary French in the 1790s. The old abbey became a courthouse before it was completely destroyed during the First World War. So what connection did these monks have to the beer we drink today? Well, it turns out not a lot. In 1996, the Bostels Brewery from Bucherhout, Flanders, which today of course is owned by InBev, began to make a triple beer. Anton Bostels, the owner and founder, said of it, quote, We came up with the idea of a multi-grain beer in 1993, just like multi-grain breads. We researched it for three years but hadn't come up with a name. By chance, I found a book about breweries in the region and my eye was drawn to a 1679 recipe from the Carmelite Monastery in Dendermonde. I looked and it contained the same grains that we had used in our test beer and for 90% it was the same formula. End quote. That is some chance. What a lucky find. Such a marvellous coincidence allowing Bossels to make that connection and state that the beer born in the 90s had solid foundations in the 17th century. Not only that, but 90% the same formula seems like not enough. I've just googled and discovered that human beings contain 90% the same DNA as cats. According to that logic, humans are cats. To summarize, as delicious as they are, Dutch and Belgian beers as we know them today are simply not as authentically and unchangingly old as their marketing likes to imply. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Beer production is ancient, and the beers we enjoy today 
are a result of a long line of brewing heritage, no matter the difference in the end product over history, that we have been able to devise technologies and recipes to constantly make changes and improvements to beer is a testament to how long we have been at it and how innovative and experimental we are. Dutch, and in many opinions, especially Belgian beers, are high-quality beverages. We should consider ourselves lucky to be living in a time where we are not resorting to putting bog myrtle or lavender or rosemary or aniseed in beer in order to get rid of the muddy taste of the water from which it has been made. Rather, such is the plethora of different beers available to us today that similarly disgusting ingredients like banana and chocolate and raspberry and mango flavoring are sometimes atrociously added in an attempt to appeal to non-conventional beer drinkers rather than because there's no other choice. When you are making mango-flavored beer, you live in a golden age of non-mango-flavored beer. And that, dear listeners, is the refreshing story of beer in the low countries. A practice we have been undertaking for millennia has ridden the waves of socio-economic changes which have shaped and formed the societies we live in today. These changes have been reflected in how and what we brew, and it seems this is something that we can rely on happening into the future. Recently in the low countries, we have seen the emergence of microbreweries, which emanate more from changes in the brewing landscapes of places like Canada, USA, Australia, New Zealand, and India. How these different brewing identities are absorbed into a market dominated by two huge brewing companies will be very interesting to see. The best thing to do is sit back, crack another one, and drink it all in. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.